interview of a bunch of college students that, let's just say, were, um, well, I don't know how they graduated from junior high, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, I was not going to use that word. I was thinking of some others, but um, ignorant was, was a good word, I think, of our country's founding. And, you know, we, we toss around and banter back and forth a lot of uh, things, and we use the phrase founding fathers. And, and I was just sitting there thinking about how crazy it was as listening to these college students, several of them working on master's degrees, uh, that had absolutely zero clue uh, about our founding. And, and as, I was, as I was listening to it, so I, I, I want to... Uh, just take a couple of minutes as we get ready for tonight's study and I'll review a few things with you so that when you're meeting people this week and you're talking to them about the 4th of July and what it means, uh, uh, true or false, the Declaration of Independence was signed by 56 signers on July 4th, 1776. Is that true or false? That's false. That's absolutely false. It's actually only signed by two on that particular day. Uh, of the 56 men that signed it, uh, all of them voted for the de- Declaration of Independence. Uh, that one is also false. The majority of the founding fathers were coming and going as that document was drafted, and they didn't get an opportunity to, to vote. There were actually several other uh, founders that didn't get a chance to sign on to that document. Uh, when you start thinking about those things, uh, some people very often look at the, that group of men, and one of the common lies that's thrown around is they, they were a bunch of deists. Now, when you talk about the founders, there's a couple of things that you need to recognize. There are three foundational documents that are included in that group of founding documents. Two of them, everybody gets off the top of their head, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. Um, but also, you have the Articles of Confederation, And when you take those three documents, along with the original uh, colonies and those who represented those colonies, there there were roughly 238 men who either signed those documents or were a representative at the time for uh, the various conventions that were held in order to sign those things. If you consider that many of them signed several of those documents, uh, there's actually only 198 Founders, if you will. That's the rough number. If you're talking about the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution of the United States, and those who are directly involved in the drafting of those documents and signing them. There were 198 of them. Uh, Would anyone like to take a wild guess as to how many of the 198 professed and were actually engaged in a Christian denominational church. Anybody want to guess? 198 of them. 198 of them. Now, does that mean that they were all necessarily Christians? Uh, Probably not. I think it would be safe to say, much as as exists today in our nation, there are people who go to church all the time who are not actually Christians. But it is also safe to say that when you look at that group of men and you specifically look at the churches they belong to, all but ten of them 
went to mainline denominational churches, Episcopalian, Anglican, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Quaker, Dutch Reformed, German Reformed, and Lutheran. All but ten of them. So when someone says to you, now the founders were a bunch of deists, you can look them right in the eye and go, you are absolutely out of your mind and have no idea what you're talking about. They were largely Bible-believing Christians. And furthermore, all but eight of them actually served at some capacity somewhere, either in a church, a Bible organization like the American Bible Society, or a missionary organization. So when you talk about how did our country come about, it, it did not come about by Buddhists getting together. Uh, it didn't come from Muslims gathering together and, and praying over what would be our, our founding documents. It came about by men who largely held a Christian worldview, believing that God was intrinsically involved in absolutely every affair of mankind. And so when you talk about the founders, be bold. And when people say, ah, they were a bunch of deists, just tell them no. They were not a bunch of deists. And furthermore, they absolutely were not a bunch of atheists or a bunch of agnostics. And so when we celebrate Fourth of July, uh, we can celebrate proudly the, the founding of the greatest nation on earth. And in spite of all of our problems, we are, and I am proud to say, the greatest nation that God has ever allowed to exist on this earth. Do we have some things that need to get squared away? Absolutely. Well, praise God, the Supreme Court actually did something good this week. Amen? Uh, and uh, worked in a way that I believe it should by upholding an individual's rights and thereby those things which that person is actively involved in and governs, that they would be able to take their religious view, their biblical view in this case, and say, you know what, that, that goes against everything I stand for. And in this case, uh, again, it's just so ridiculous the arguments that are being made that you know women are somehow being denied right to contraception uh, through the Supreme Court decision. That's absolutely ludicrous. Uh, there's still plenty of contraceptive coverage within Hobby Lobby's uh, ability and what they have declared these things are okay. And, and the only thing that they've done is to strike down uh, all four of the medications that induce uh, the death of a fertilized egg. And so uh, it, it is it is time that Christians just say, you know what, I'm proud that our nation was founded on Christian principles. And to, to boldly proclaim that truth and to stop taking the backseat and go, well, I don't really know. Now you know. If you didn't know when you got here, you now know. You can go look it up. And you'll Google it, you know, as everybody does. Just go Google the founders and read who they were. Amazing stories. Uh, an unknown guy that probably not one person in this room's ever heard of, a guy named John Hart. John Hart was a, uh, a state assembly person, uh, assemblyman at the time. Uh, would go back to be the Speaker of the Senate in, in, the, in New Jersey. John Hart lost everything because he signed the Declaration of Independence. He spent six months running from the British, living in caves. His wife died. He lost his farm. He lost everything. So when they said, we pledge each other our lives and our fortunes, they meant it. So celebrate the fourth this week and remember what it really means. 
It absolutely is that all men have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the only reason that those things are in there is because that's exactly what your Bible declares as well. Amen? Turn in your Bibles tonight as we begin to take a look at this uh, next chapter, the eighth chapter here uh, in the book of Joshua. Now, a lot of people left last week and they're like, their chins down at their feet, they're bummed, they're like, man, I just, I am unworthy of life in general. Because it's a tough chapter. Now we get the good news. Uh, the, the absolutely wonderful news. How many of you have had a defeat in your spiritual life? Today, today yeah, today. <laughs> Most everybody's hands will still be up. Yeah, we, we have defeats in our spiritual life. Amen? There are things that we would like to do better than we do. There are things that we even know we shouldn't do and we do them. There are things that we know we shouldn't do and we do We do everything imaginable uh, with regard to knowing the things that God wants for us. And then all of a sudden we look at our lives and then, my goodness, you know, how we have stumbled and tripped and failed. And uh, that was the case with AI. The, the city that shouldn't have been an issue, shouldn't have been a problem, yet it was because of the arm of flesh, because of not waiting on the Lord, not praying, not seeking God's face, going out in their own strength making their own plan. Does it sound like anybody in here? It sounds like me. If it doesn't sound like you, it sounds like me. I, we can be guilty of those things. Amen? We don't wait on the Lord. We don't pray. We, we don't read the Word. We go out and make our own plans. We operate in the arm of flesh. We operate in yesterday's manna. All those things are true in our lives, if you're honest with yourself. Now, prayerfully, as you as you age in the Lord, prayerfully as you... Age in the Lord, you're going to get a little better at making the distance between those those trips, stumbles, and failures further. It's going to be longer between those those catastrophic events in your life. And hopefully, as you really grow in Christ and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, uh, eventually you get to where you really don't blow it too bad too often. You may have little things, but we still lose a battle. Here's the good news. God allows do-overs. Can I have an amen? God allows do-overs. And this is the story of the eighth chapter. You have this terrible defeat, this shaming event, and then God in his marvelous grace, his wonderful mercy, brings us to the next chapter and says, hey, wait a second. It's going to be okay. And boy, do we need that message. Wait a second. It's going to be okay. God's got a plan. And he can fix anything. Life is very often a series of mistakes. I don't know about you guys, but I, I think most of the very most powerful lessons I've learned in my life have been things that I've done wrong that God squared away. Now, I'm not encouraging you, by the way, to go out and see how much you can sin so you can see if you can get really, really, really righteous. Paul addressed that, but I think that it is time that, that we recognize that God takes our failures and does wonderful things through them. And so as we begin tonight, uh, we'll be looking at chapter 8, 
and the first 22 verses. And let's ask God to bless our time in the Word. Father, we thank you for this time that we could gather together tonight and just study your Word and, and learn uh, the truths of it, God, that, that you don't keep us down. God, you want us to get back up and get on the horse and ride again. Lord, you want us to repent of our sin, of course, uh, but you're right there to restore us if we'll just simply uh, ask of you and, and get back in the game. And so, Lord, pray that you'd refresh us tonight with this message. Uh, watch over us. Keep us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Henry Ford put it this way, a mistake is an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Uh, I, I like that because sometimes it, it is that mistake that we look at and go, well, I, that didn't work out so good, so let's try this again. Thomas Edison, much the same thing. Uh, when he was developing the light bulb and oft quoted one from him, is that he, he didn't fail to build a light bulb. He just figured out 10,000 ways to do it wrong. He, and that's true. He figured out 10,000 ways to do it wrong. It's not a failure. Sometimes doing things wrong causes the creative juices in our brain to get going, and it works the same way spiritually. When we've had some type of mistake that's gone on in our lives, those mistakes that we've endured and gone through, those things which we maybe didn't wait on the Lord, didn't hear from the Lord, didn't seek the Lord, stopped praying to the Lord, didn't get Christian counsel, we, we didn't hear from someone who maybe has a bit more wisdom that's walked on this earth for a while. You know, sometimes those things can almost seem like they're fatal. They're not fatal. God can redeem anything. Thomas Edison also said many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Also uh, a really good one. He went on further to say, and I love this one, uh, also from Thomas Edison. He had all kinds. He's, he's kind of a funny guy for a brainiac. We often miss opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. That also is true. Doing things well, doing things right, recognizing your mistakes. I don't know how many of you have ever had to do something over again that was relatively large. I, I had a, a foreman working for me back in the early 1980s. And, uh, well, let's just say every once in a while he didn't quite pay attention. And we were building a very large horse ranch. And the boundary fence on this horse ranch, uh, a parcel that was a full section, that's 640 acres, for those of you that don't know, that's about a square mile, uh, is what that actually is. So it's a mile square, so each side of it is a mile long, yeah? Well, you really kind of want that boundary fence on the right chunk of property. He finished the whole thing 100 feet on the next lot over. Bummer. Three weeks worth of work. Had to tear the whole thing out. Start completely over. But you know what? He never did another one of those. Of course, if he had, he'd been looking for work. But, <laughs> but he learned from the mistake. Check it twice. Measure twice, cut once, is what we say in the construction trade. Measure twice, cut once. <laughs> Amen. You can't get a board stretcher was another famous one in construction. There's no such thing as once it's cut, it's cut. 
But that's not true in God's economy. God can stretch boards. God can take massive mistakes and make really wonderful things out of them. And he does so tonight. Verse 1 here in Joshua 8. And now the Lord said to Joshua, and I love this, you talk about encouragement, and that's the first word here. He says, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Now, after what just happened to him, what would have your natural tendency been? I would have been afraid, and I absolutely would have been dismayed. I'm like, Lord, I blew it. I did it wrong. I didn't listen to you. And I would have been waiting for God to just, you know, wallop me upside the head with something. But God says, don't do that. And don't be dismayed. That means don't have an attitude of defeat. Don't have an attitude of defeat. Don't be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. And arise and go up to Ai. Would you have wanted to do that, given what had just happened? I I would have not wanted to do that, given what had just I would have liked to have not ever seen another person from the little town of Ai. I, I would have liked to have gone the other way. But this is how God works. Very often he sends us right back to the place where we've had a failure so that we can experience a victory. Because he doesn't want us walking in defeat. He doesn't want us stumbling around in darkness thinking forever that the enemy's won. And so he sends us back. A story that I've shared before, but it's been a long time. Uh, early in my ministry at the camp, I, I, well, let's just say I had a critical spirit. I had a critical spirit. I just was kind of trying to figure out what this whole camp director thing was. And, man, I, I remember just bagging on a worship team that had come from Calvary Chapel, Moreno Valley. And frankly, they were terrible. They really were. I mean, as far as having, you know, musical gifts, they just didn't have any. But their hearts were right. And I remember sitting there just talking with a couple of the guys. And they were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I don't even know why we brand. And they just went on and on. And I'm agreeing with them. And next day I got a call from Pastor Steve Mays. Jeff? I got something you need to do. You need to go meet with Pastor John at Calvary Chapel, Moreno Valley. And I'm like, my heart's going, why? Because that was his son you were talking about. And he said, you can either do it or today's your last day as the director of the camp. So I thought, mm, that's pretty good motivation. I'll go. And and so I went. I, I went down and I was just like, and in walks John's son. And I'm like, oh, dear. And I just started bawling. I'm just like, I can't believe I said this. I am so sorry. And I look over, and Pastor John is laughing. And after I got done saying, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. You know, just how terrible that was. It was gossip. You know, I went through the whole spiel. I got an opportunity to go where I'd had a defeat. And then John looked at me and he says, that's all right. I didn't think they were very good either. (laughs) (laughs) But you, you, you learn those lessons sometimes when you have to go back and clean up your own mess. Amen. And I'll tell you what, they're powerful. 
And God sends you back there for a purpose. Sends you back to learn something you wouldn't otherwise learn. Remember that when you look at this passage. Take the people of war with you and arise. Go to Ai and see, for I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Better to take what God has given you than to fabricate what you yourself think you can get. And in this case, God is now saying, look, now I'm in this. I wasn't in it last time, but I'm I'm in it this time. And so he says, and you shall do to Ai and its king as as you did in Jericho and its king. Only its spoil, its cattle, you shall take as booty for yourselves and lay an ambush for the city behind it. And so you see this beautiful picture of the way God works in repentance and restoration. And when you get those things going in your life, it's also a great recipe for revival. Three R's. When you're willing to say, look, Lord, I blew it, and I know I blew it, and do what it takes to be restored, then God's right there to to bring something fresh and something new into your life. And that's exactly what happens in the lives of the Jewish people. And we'll see more of it next week as we finish this chapter off. Beautiful principle here. God allows those fresh starts, those do-overs. You see, Psalm 37, that passage that I have there, it says there in in verse 23 and 24, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And it says something really strange right in the middle of that whole passage. It says, Though he fall, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And though he fall, the steps of a good man that are ordered by the Lord, though he fall. It's spoken in the Hebrew language in an emphatic voice. In other words, even when your steps are ordained of the Lord, called out by the Lord, purposed by the Lord, sanctioned by the Lord, there are times when you may end up falling even then. Doesn't mean that it's a foregone conclusion, doesn't mean it has to happen, but there are times when it will happen, that you will do the very thing that you don't really set out to do. Paul said that, by the way, as he authored the book of Romans. Remember what he said? Those things I will to do, I don't do those things. The things I don't want to do, that's the stupid stuff I do do. So I find this thing, this thing, this war going on with the, inside me. Those things which I will not do, those things I do, and those things which I do not will to do, those things, I, I find it difficult to overcome those. You see, that principle is actually an Old Testament principle. It's found here in the book of Joshua. It's found in the Psalms. But he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And the picture is that of a friend. You're out running around someplace and you fall down and the friend's right there to pick you up. It's like, did that hurt? (laughs) Your knees feel okay there, bub? (laughs) And all of a sudden, here comes the hand of the Lord to pick you right right back up out of the dumb stuff that you do. Don't test him. And don't read anything into this passage tonight. But God's there to pick us up when we fall down. If we're willing... He's willing. And he doesn't shelf anybody permanently. Now, you you may go through consequences that are brought into your life because of the things that you've done. But but it's it's not a death sentence. It's not over. 
The Lord will do that work of restoration. No matter what mistakes we make, the worst mistake really is to not repent and try it again. That's the worst mistake. It's kind of like the old adage, there's no such thing as a dumb question, only a dumb answer. Yeah, it's, it's true. You know, when you, when you get out and try and sometimes you fail, uh, our, our, our lives, as James, James McDonald rightly said, are a series of startups. There are things that we go through and boom, right back up. We, from where we once were, uh, we fall, we come back up again. And so as we start looking at this passage a little bit in, in detail, notice the word of encouragement here. The very first thing that happens in the first verse. It's like, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be dismayed. I would encourage you, take out your Bible and look especially at those uh, Isaiah passages in, in Isaiah 40, 41, 42, 43. Uh, if you look at those passages, all those fear not statements that are in there. Uh, we've seen a bunch of them in the first eight chap- chapters of the book of Luke. Fear not. That's the word of the Lord to us. It's an encouragement. Yeah, it can be tough. It can be difficult, but fear not. The next word that we get from the Lord is found there in the first and second verses, the first half of the second half of the first verse and all of verse two. And it's an instruction. He says, look, I want you to do what I tell you to do. Isn't it funny how sometimes we, we, we blame God for a bad result when we didn't actually do what he told us to do? You know, it's like because we prayed, but we did exactly what God told us not to do. Somehow it's his fault. It's not his fault. We need to we need to. Obey the instructions. On the first attack, it doesn't sound like from what Scripture tells us about that attack, it doesn't even sound like they even asked God what God wanted to do. But we know this, they didn't have a victory, so they surely weren't being prospered by God, because God's already said in this passage, He said, look, I've given you the land, it's yours. I've given you the city, it's yours. He's even going to give them the spoils, which makes it all the more crazy about Achan and his sin. Amen? If he'd have just waited a couple of days, he could add everything he wanted. Because God's actually going to give it to him. So the picture there is, is as we wait on the Lord and do what God wants us to do, uh, we, we get what God wants for us. D.L. Moody, one of his famous one-liners was, it's better to have what God wants than what you want. Because there's a lot of things we want that God doesn't want for us, and if you get them, you're going to be miserable. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. They kind of went out in their flesh. They ended up fighting the battle and getting beat up. They lost. And then finally, there's a word of promise here in these first couple of verses. You notice what it says. Can I remind you that God never makes promises that are too good to be true? Probably all of you, if you have a a computer and it's hooked to the Internet, you have no doubt seen some of these, I make $8,000 a day sitting in my underwear in my living room. You've seen those? You know, it's just like you you don't even have to do anything. The money just flies out of your computer screen right into your living room if you just do this multi-level marketing thing. You know, you sell some kind of juice or berry. That's usually what it is. It's some new berry they found in the middle of the Amazon, and they put it into some form of juice, and it will cause you to live cancer-free for 800 years. And you just sell it, and everybody wants it. You know how many people get rich actually doing those things? Zero. Because usually the guys that even start them, the first two people, they normally lose it because they invest in their own, they drink their own Kool-Aid. 
That's the way the world works. But God often sends us things that seem too good to be true. And they're not. They're actually that good. They're actually that wonderful. Because God can make good on those things. I'll give you an example of one that you can probably think of for yourself. It's you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Doesn't that seem too good to be true? That by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. Amen? That seems too good to be true. And that's actually the reason that the world has a problem with the gospel. Well, it's too easy. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. It's too easy. But it's also true. And so the word of promise, look, I've given you the land, it's yours. And I want you to notice something, too, that, that this is also, in this promise, I have given... I want you to notice something here. The way it's phrased, it's still an act of faith. I have given it to you, but you haven't gotten it yet. You need to go do something about what I have given you. That's faith. That's faith that works. Exactly what James says. I've given it to you. The promise is yours. The city's yours. But you still need to put one foot in front of the other and go do what I told you to do. That's faith that works. You can see faith working that way. And it's important that our faith works, because a lot of people just have faith in faith. They have faith that just simply because they pray that something's going to happen. God has actually told us very clearly in the book of James that we will be able to show our faith by our works, that what we do is a direct reflection of what we actually believe. And so that's found here as well. I want you to notice next, uh, there's a new strategy here. Uh, God is so varied in the way that he does things. And I, and I hope we get this message ourselves in this passage. Verse 3, it says here in Joshua chapter 8, And so Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. Now, the inference there is he didn't actually send them to Ai. He just sent them away. He sent them somewhere. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city, not in the city. You're not going to attack it. But do not go very far from the city, but all of you simply be ready. And then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And it will come about that when they come out against us at first, that we will flee from them. (laughs) This is about the opposite of Jericho, isn't it? Jericho, they're like marching around the city. Hi, how are you guys doing? (laughs) We're going to blow some trumpets here and the walls are going to fall down. I mean, they're bold in their face. Everybody's doing it. The whole gang's marching around. Now, now they get to this place. Do you see the difference? And, and here's the, the lesson that I think we can learn from this one in this specific area. God hates repetition. I really see throughout Scripture God of, a, of an infinitely variable kind. I had a very, very nice lady a few months ago came and uh, she paid us a compliment. She says, you know, I've come to your church several times, and I somehow managed to come uh, for communion very frequently. I, I don't know why I planned that that way. And she says, you know why I, I find find it possible to say this? 
He says, I, I almost never come on the same Sunday. You don't necessarily do communion on the same Sunday. You, you never do it the same way. There's always a different message. And she says, I like that because that shows me how infinitely wonderful God is. And, and so I think that there's a, there's a wonderful place for us to recognize that just because we did something one way last week doesn't necessarily mean God wants us to do it this way, this week. He, he likes to stir things up and it keeps people's gifts in play. A lot of times when you just do things over and over and over and over again the same way and you expect a different result, that, that's the definition of insanity. But God is saying, look, we're going to do it differently than we did at Jericho. Now, it's hard for our humanness, isn't it? Let me tell you why. They lost at AI the first time. They won at Jericho. So if you're going to repeat something, you kind of want to repeat a winning formula. Yeah, that's our human nature. You see how God is actually flying a little bit in the face uh, of what our human nature would say. Well, we'll just do it like we just did at Jericho, and we'll be fine. And God's saying, "Mm -mm, that's not what I want to do, because then you can think it's you. When God changes things up, and he makes us get out of our comfort zone. Anybody hate that more than I? I hate getting, I don't like getting out of my comfort zone. I have to come in, I like my pen to be on exactly the same place on my desk every day. I'm goofy that way. It's like I can tell if somebody's been in my office just because my pen is turned. Somebody was here. I can move my pen. My pen back. I think God does that just to get to me. He like tweaks my pen at night. We're going to draw them out of the city. They're going to run away. Basically, Joshua and his troop is going to come up to the city. They're going to turn tail and run. They're going to bait them. God has a sense of humor. Or they will come out after us till we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they're fleeing from before us as at the first. You see the picture? You see, the enemy likes to do the same thing the same way over, and he usually gets a pretty fair result because we're not listening to God. And therefore we will flee before them. And then you will rise from the ambush and seize the city, for your Lord God will deliver it into your hand. And so now you see why he's sending this other group to kind of hang around the city. It's not going to be directly involved in this frontal assault. That's going to be Joshua. And his, they're going to take and t- turn tail and run. And then the group that's just sitting there doing nothing is going to be able to walk right into the city. According to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. For see, I have commanded you. And Joshua therefore sent them out. And they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. So they've gone around the city. They're up against the slope of the mountains that rise up out of the Jordan Valley. And they lodged that night among the people. And then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people. And he went up and all of the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now towards the valley between them and there laid Ai. And now it took about 5,000 men, and he set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side. And so there's a whole bunch of people. There's a massive fighting force. And the majority of them are going to be used as nothing more than bait. 
And when they went and had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard in the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. And so God begins to set forth uh, this new plan of attack. There's a, there's a scene uh, that's in one of Shakespeare's plays, and King, King Arthur is speaking, and he says, God fulfills himself in many ways, lest one good custom should corrupt the entire world. Uh, it, it, is, it is true that, that very often we just kind of get stuck in a rut. I don't know if you guys get stuck in ruts, but I get stuck in ruts. And then sometimes I end up doing weird things because I'm stuck in a rut. I get like, oh, this isn't working. And I, you know, you just start to doubt what God is doing in your life. I have a little bit of that going on today. Here I'm sitting there studying. I'm typing away. I even sent Connie an email. Pray for me. I'm just like being assaulted. You know, I'm writing my notes. I'm going, that doesn't even make any sense. And you, you just because this is the way I do it. If you look at my notes, which I know you guys don't see me look at them because I basically don't look at them too much when I'm teaching, but I look at them a lot when I'm studying. And so I sit there and I have all kinds of colors and I'm looking at it and I'm going like, that doesn't even, why do I do that? I actually started talking to myself. I shouldn't share that with you, but I, I was talking. I'm like, why do I do it that way? And you know, all of a sudden I'm, well, you shouldn't do it that way. You should do it some other way. And all of a sudden it was just like this, this tradition that I'd gotten into or something, you know, and it was just a weird time. And all of a sudden the Lord says, well, what difference does it make? It's supposed to be a work of my spirit. Oh, that's right. And so the strategy that God gave Joshua here is virtually the opposite of what he used at Jericho. That messes with our comfort zone, doesn't it? You know, if I were to tell you, you know, you need to do everything you were doing yesterday, do it the opposite today, most of you come back and go, Jeff's lost it. Loopy. And yet sometimes God does that. Not all the time, but sometimes he does do that. The key thing here, and and it's something that we can kind of see in the way they responded, was that Joshua had actually sought God's face this time. He'd actually talked to the Lord. Notice the way he's, he's talking for God in this. See, I have commanded you because the commandment of the Lord says you shall do it this way. In other words, he talked to the Lord. God gave him instruction. He says, this is what we're going to do. Now, very often for us, it's pretty easy to see where we get that kind of instruction. Amen? It's just a little book that you got in your lap. It's called your Bible. You pull that thing out and you go, ah, that's the Lord speaking to me. Back then, they actually had and heard uh, the audible word of the Lord. God actually spoke. We actually saw, if you remember, uh, back in chapter 5, there was a Christophany there where the Lord Jesus appeared as the Lord of the army of hosts. And he actually speaks, and he says, look, there's a guy who's standing here, looks like a dude, and the dude said. So God actually spoke to him. Now we have God having already spoke to us. You know, sometimes young Christians will go, well, God never speaks to me. And I said, sure he does. Well, no, he doesn't. I said, sure he does. "Uh Uh-uh, never does. Yes, he does. Speaks to you all the time. And I'll usually say something like, how many pages are in your Bible? And they never know, because it's different, depending on, you know, which version you have. You know, it's a couple thousand pages, usually. You realize you have a written letter from God that's several thousand pages long. Don't tell me God hasn't spoken to you. They're like, oh, that? Uh Uh-huh. 
He's told you all kinds of things that he wants you to do and all kinds of things that he doesn't want you to do, all kinds of things to watch out for, all kinds of things that you can count as an actual promise to you. God has spoken to you out of the mouths of prophets and out of the mouths of the apostles by his Holy Spirit through inspiration. God has spoken to us. So we do have some instruction. We do know what to do. The problem is sometimes we don't like what it says. The laugh and Mary and I were, you should have seen us. We were in trying to put up a soap dispenser before service. We, we look like two goofballs back there. It's not that tough. It's only got three little sticky things on the back of it. But I got it on the wall and the both of us together with our brains couldn't figure out how to open the thing to put the soap in it. Soap dispenser's not really good without soap inside them, okay? Little secret. Read the instructions. We pull out the instructions. We still couldn't get it. But that's because we're not horribly smart. Well, I'm not. Mary finally figured it out. But we forget the instructions we already have. How many of you have been guilty of calling tech support on something without having read the, the directions? I got this problem, you know, it used to be, remember back when everybody had VCRs and every VCR, it took you like four days to actually put them in and, and it, they came with a 600 page manual and it was like, if you press button A and button C and button D and you hold your finger up in the air and you twist around like this and you, you know, somehow it actually programs it so that, you know, you can do stuff with it and, and, and you get tired of that and you call tech support. What's the first thing they ask you? Do you have a manual? Have you read the manual? It's on page 46. You kind of feel silly when they do that. Then you look at it and go, oh, it's right there. That's kind of how God is with us. Do you have a manual? Have you read the manual? Did you do what the manual says? Well, no. It's kind of the picture here. He says, look, I told you it was yours before. (laughs) And you didn't follow the instructions. And you got a bad result. Let's try a do-over. Let's do it my way this time. It's easy to find ourselves in all kinds of ruts that way. There's an American business leader who lived most of his life uh, almost a century ago, but born in 18, the 1880s. His name is Bruce Barton, and he actually founded a, an advertising agency uh, that went on to have some fairly uh, significant clients. Uh, so if you've ever seen the actual Betty Crocker, that was him. Uh, General Motors, that was him. General Electric, that was him. Very successful uh, in advertising. Knew kind of what triggered people's imaginations. And he actually wrote a book called The Man That Nobody Knows, and it was based on the business principles that are found in the Bible, and it consequently is about biblical stewardship as seen in the life of Christ. But one of the truths that he came up with in that book, he says, when you're through changing, uh, you're through, period. He says, to fail to see change. And if you read the gospel accounts, you're going to see Jesus finding new ways to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. 
the Gospels are all filled with the same basic things that mankind goes through, the same problems, and Jesus is going, okay, and let me tell you this parable about that subject. It's the way God works. And so God's not mad at us. He just realizes that sometimes we don't follow the instruction manual. And so in this case, the people of Ai were just as overconfident as the Jews were a few days earlier. And so God uses that overconfidence just like he did with the Jewish people. And so they set up this new strategy. And the, the word that we use that is, that is translated in English, strategy, actually means almost exclusively to lead an army. So when you think of strategizing, it, it means to lead an army. It, it means that you have resources at your disposal. We call that logistics. Yeah, you got all kinds of things that if you've ever watched, I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity but when, you, when we get ready to deploy someplace and they move all that stuff from out there next to Barstow, out at the Marine Corps uh, the supply depot that's out there, have you ever seen so much stuff in your entire life? All of a sudden they load up semis and here comes tanks and uh, personnel carriers and Humvees and MRAP vehicles and mobile buildings and all this stuff just gets put on trucks and then it goes to a usually an air force or a naval air base and it gets put on either a ship or a plane and shipped someplace. You, you see, to strategize means to take the things that God has given you and put them to the use for which he intends them. Now I can tell you this, that's a tough job when you're talking about moving around thousands and thousands and thousands of people and all kinds of equipment. It's a tough job in the spiritual realm too. Because the enemy is out to thwart the plans of God. And so he throws all kinds of stuff in your way. There's freeway tie-ups and there's stuff that breaks down in the middle of its serviceable life expectancy. It's usually me or you, some person. There are things that happen. And so the Lord says, look, I want you to realize I'm in it this time. We're going to do things my way. There's a new strategy. There's a new way to, to lead and I want you to also pick up on a little tiny thing that, that's here in the life of Joshua. Unlike the life of David, and you'll see this in just a moment, Joshua is actually going to lodge with his troops. He's going to go with them into battle. You never want to follow somebody in battle who will not go under their own battle plan. That's a bad idea. Because if someone doesn't have enough belief in the battle plan themselves to get engaged in the war, you have to wonder what kind of confidence they have. You remember what David did? David stayed home. At a time in which the nation was at war, David stayed home, and that's how he got in trouble with Bathsheba. Because he was not at war where he belonged. You all are part of the army that is God's people. Amen? We're fighting a spiritual battle against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. We're in a battle. And so we need to go with the Lord wherever the battle is. Because it's no safer behind the lines. Matter of fact, it may be more dangerous for you. Sitting around waiting for what the enemy's going to do. I want you to notice there's also a new type of, of victory. And again, I love that God allows do-overs. Notice verse 14 here. 
And it says, and now it happened that when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and arose early and went out against Israel to battle. And he and all of his people at an appointed place before the plain. And he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. You see, when you do God's things, God's way, God provides the way for the victory. So, so I don't know how you hid this massive fighting force that was behind the city, but somehow God did that. And so they were in so much of a hurry to go wipe out the Jewish people that what seems like a recipe for disaster is actually a new victory that they're going to, to undertake. And so here they are, they're completely oblivious to what God's actually doing. And Joshua and all of Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So here's all the people that are with Joshua, and they're like, they're probably screaming, ah, you know, they're doing the whole, ah, they're going to get us, you know. I don't know what they said, but they're running away. They're, they're, they're saying to the people of Ai, they're going to kill us. And yet, what was really going on was they were preparing for the force that was behind them to come in and take the city almost without a fight. And so all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. And there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. And so they left the city open and pursued Israel. When God is in the battle plans, the victory is assured because he's the one that's already fought it. They didn't have to do anything. This is a this is a picture of grace. This is a picture of victory and spiritual warfare. Notice what the people actually have to do in this. Pretty much nothing, amen? How hard is the battle when what you're doing is running away? Not too tough. How hard is the battle when there's no enemy left to fight? Not very tough. God fought it for them. His plan... His resources done His way guaranteed the victory at no loss of life. The Jewish people, instead of losing the soldiers, now are taking the treasures. Interesting picture here. Matthew Matthew Henry elaborated on it. He said, uh, people are most in danger when they're least aware of it. Very often that's true. Places that we think are strength. Notice what the king of Ai is. He's, well, you know, we defeated him two days ago. We got this. Let's just chase him. Now, I don't know if it strikes you, but the fighting force of the Jewish people is probably two to three times as many people as the total, the sum and total of the entire population of Ai. And they leave their fortified city and go after a massive fighting force. That's what overconfidence can do for you. You never want to fight a battle in your own strength. Because in this case, it was actually the smaller force that was the more dangerous. They were the ones that were actually going to take the city. God knew what God would do is the best way to look at it. You you see, when we we look at these things, sometimes we're like, ah, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't even know why God put this in in the Word. Notice what what happens here. Some keys kind of this victory found in the... Remaining few verses here. And when the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out your spear that's in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Does that sound like kind of, I don't know, it almost sounds lame. It sounds like silly. It's like 
you want me to stretch out my spear and not supposed to do something. When we do things that we don't understand, but we do them because Lord said so, we do those things in faith. Amen? I don't know how God's going to do that. I don't know how it worked out with Gideon either. Amen? I don't know how those things work. I just know what God says we're supposed to do. And when we do what he says, we have victory. When we don't do what he says, we don't have victory. We have defeat. And so he says, stretch out your spear that's in your hand towards Ai. For I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear and that was in his hand towards the city. And those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. You see, actually what it was, was Joshua's obedience was also a signal to those that were awaiting God's next next move. Sometimes it's the simple things that we do that encourage someone else to take their place in God's plan. Uh, I've seen this so many times in my own life to where someone will come up to me after a service or maybe a few days later and they go, you said this, 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 and this. And I'll, I'll usually say something like I did. And they go, well, yeah, you said, you know, it's like towards the end of the message and you were talking about it. And I'll look at my notes, and it's not my notes. Why? Because it's God speaking directly to people. It's just, okay, God, I'm just going to go stretch out the spear. I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing here. You told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, someone else gets the message they're supposed to get. And those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. And ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand. They entered the city and took it and hurried and set the city on fire. So now the people that were supposed to be in Ai have their city burning behind them. They're trapped. they got nowhere to go. They are, they are pinched. This is a classic in a military sense. This is a pincher movement. you got two opposing forces and you were in the middle. This is a bad place to be. This is exactly what happened at the Battle of the Bulge. You got opposing forces, and you are not supposed to be in the middle of them. That's where you don't want to be. And the men of Ai looked behind them, and they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. And so they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people who had fled into the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. They're done. It's over. All because of simple obedience to the commands of the Lord. No, isn't that crazy? Think about it for a second. This was not some great military victory in that sense. It was a military victory, but it wasn't because it was military strategy that won. It was a new strategy. I'm going to have you go and pretend that you're chickens. Go right up to the city and then go and run away. And they're going to chase you. And then the guys that are doing nothing, they're oversleeping behind the city, are going to take the city. God can do anything He wants. And He can use anybody to accomplish it. That's why Paul wrote, God delights to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. The unseemly things. It's like it doesn't even make any sense to us. I can my own life, very much in that in that regard. It's like, me? And that's not a false sense of pride. That's just saying, I know me. It's like, me? Really? Yep, you. Okay. 
you're going to have to do something, God. Because I don't see what you see. I'm glad you see it, but I don't see it. What were some of the keys to the victory? Number one, just as Second Chronicles chapter 20 says, Joshua was conscious that the battle was the Lord's. It was the Lord's battle. It wasn't Joshua's battle. Anybody ever guilty of going, well, i got to fight this, and i got to fight that, and I need to do this, and I need to do that. We have our part. Let me be really clear here. But the battle belongs to the Lord. If, it, if it's your strength, if it's your abilities, if it's your uh, resources, any of those things, you're going to run out of stuff. You're going to run out of power. And you're going to run out of plans. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's a lesson that we all need to learn, myself included. It's one that we can stand to have a refresher in. A second thing, Joshua waited for God's instructions. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of built out of the, the cloth that says, those guys got me last time, I'm getting them this time. My natural inclination would have been to take about 60,000 guys. We're just going to go stomp them into the dirt. That would have been my basic plan. I believe in victory by superior firepower. That is how God worked it out. He said, I'm going to make you look like a bunch of sissies. You're going to go up to the city, you're going to turn tail and run, and that's how you're going to win. I don't like that kind of battle. You know why? Because you can't take a bit of credit for it, amen? You can't take a bit of credit. You (laughs) run up to the city, you turn tail and run. Yeah, we were the best chickens ever. We went right up to the city gates and we taunted them for 30 seconds and ran away. Nobody wants to recount that. You're not going to have, you know, Jeff's Iliad written about the running away from the city of Ai. Yes, I was in the group that valiantly ran away. Got God's instructions, and God's instructions in the human sense didn't make sense. But they made absolute sense to God. So he just simply lifts up his spear. Faith begins to work, just as it says there in James 2. It's like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but here it is. I'm putting the spear up. You said to do it, I'm doing it. And then then the plans begin to unfold. Oh, anybody ever had those aha moments when God actually does something that you're not anticipating because you don't think he can do it that way and he does it? You're going, oh, that's what you meant. I have those things all the time. The fight may be difficult. It may actually be easy. Sometimes we don't know. When we let God do what God wants to do, we can see Him at work. And so as we wrap this up tonight, we need to wait for God to speak. We need to operate in faith. We need to realize that He allows us to Take those times of, of do-overs. We, we do, in fact, uh, at times, just simply have to be emptied out of ourselves. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, I'm poured out as a drink offering. I mean, that was a way of saying, look, I, I'm, I'm spent. There's nothing left of me. I'm dumped out. That drink offering went on the steps of the temple. 
and it usually evaporated in the sun. It was a sign that the Spirit was at work, but it was just washing down the steps of the street. But I know this, that one day there's going to be a crown of righteousness attached to that pouring out for those that love the Lord and are looking for His appearing. And that result of this, the men of Ai were trapped. They were done. And God says to the, the, the Jewish people, look, go take everything. It's all yours. The exact opposite of Jericho. He told them to take nothing, burn everything. This time he says, take everything. There's a little bit of an interesting wordplay here. Because basically what he's saying is, nothing is yours and everything is yours. That's exactly how it is here on this earth, isn't it? Nothing is yours and everything is yours. Because of who we are in Christ... Everything that is the Lord's is ours. But actually, none of it belongs to us. We're simply stewards of it. It doesn't really belong to me. Your house doesn't belong to you. Your cars don't belong to you. Your money is not yours. It's actually God's. And yet, it's yours because it's his. And so the Lord speaks to them in a wonderful way. And he says to him, you know what? You need to put off the old way, put on the new way, just as that Ephesians 4 passage says. And then take up a new beginning and let God do something marvelous in your sight. Be encouraged. Because I think we need to all know that God allows for do-overs. And when he allows them, he actually has a plan for victory in them. You know, sometimes when we think about starting over, we, we think about just surviving. In this case, they didn't just survive, they thrived. Amen? They they didn't just go out and kind of sort of make it. They had an amazing victory in which they were enriched. That that new beginning of, of, look, Lord, I'm sorry I blew it, was a beginning that filled their, their coffers with riches, allowed their barns to be filled up with their animals and their food stores to be replenished. And so they went from from a tremendous defeat to an amazing victory all by simply waiting for the Lord to speak and then doing what it was he said. It's a great recipe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thanks that you allow us the opportunity to start over, God. I thank you. I'm sure most everyone here tonight thanks you for those opportunities to Start again, again, sometimes, Lord. Pray that you'd help us to stumble less frequently, to never be willfully disobedient. God, pray that we would always be looking to be well-pleasing to you. And we pray that those days when we're walking down life's path and we stub a toe and end up on our face, that you would dust us off and get us back in the game. God, pray that we'd bear fruit Not just a little fruit, but much fruit for your kingdom. We love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that it has to change us and transform us, Lord. Thanks for the new beginnings that we have had in our lives. Pray that we look forward, Lord, to the things that you're doing with us in this church. And that, God, we'd have a a fresh vision. We'd have fresh fire. Lord, that there would be a, a sense that there's something new that you want to do with us. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.